please welcome uh, my, my very uh, dear friend, Mary Ann Doherty, to introduce our speaker. So I'm going to tell you um, how I found Mary and got her here. It's a good story. So my, my, both of my parents grew up in Johnstown. My family goes back many years in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So I knew all about that flood growing up. I heard stories. My great-grandfather was in it. <clears throat> and um, I was trying to remember a book. Monty and I both read it. He, he found the title today, in a Sunlight in a Beautiful Garden. But I was trying to tell somebody about a book I'd read about the flood that was really good. So I said, let me look it up. And I'm Googling you know, books about the flood. And her book came up right away because it's new. And I thought, ooh, I've never saw this one. And it was fairly recent. So I bought it, and I read it, and I loved it. And she took the whole story and fictionalized it. She'll tell you about it. But it was so well done and so good. And it has a real, um, a real meaning. You know, I, I called this flood, the, think of it as Katrina for the 19th century, because it was very much about the haves, the 1%, and all the rest of the poor people that were, you know, too bad. They're in the path of this flood water. And she really she took that theme. And you'll see, she weaves it into the book. And so you get all of that sense of the injustice of how things were done. It's just a really good book. So I hope you will go down afterwards and get one and have her sign it. She has a couple other books down there. I read her book, Two Sisters, and it's wonderful. We, a couple of us have read it, and we loved it. So I'm glad I found a new author now. She's working on a new book, and I can't wait to read that. So, um, But anyway, I found her, and she agreed to come. And I was like, oh my god, I can't believe it. I couldn't believe these people that all said yes this year. And they're all just wonderful. So. Um, we have two more speakers this week that you're going to really like. But now, without further ado, I will, in, I will introduce who's somebody who's become a friend now. She's great, Mary Hogan. Thank you so much, Marianne. Uh, how many of you are a little bit tipsy? I, my, my hotel room was on top of the party, and I kind of was watching. Um, before I get started, I want to ask how many of you really know very much about the Johnstown flood and about what happened there in 1889. Good. You know, I, I, I do, uh, well, ironically, I had never even heard of Johnstown before I decided to write an entire book about it. <laughs> the first time I heard about it was in 1992. My late husband, Robert Hogan, was an actor in New York where we lived at the time. And he was in a play called On the Bum. It wasn't about Johnstown, it was about hobos in the Depression, but there was one poetic mention of a lake in the sky that wiped out a town in the valley, a working class town called Johnstown. And I remember thinking, how could there be a lake in, in the sky? How could there be a lake over your head? I was curious about the geography. And the very next day, I went to the library and looked it up. This was before the internet, which shows how long ago it was. And that was the first time I read about what really happened there. And it just blew my mind. What a story it really was. And right then and there, I decided that somehow, someday, I was going to write a novel about the Johnstown flood. And it took me 25 years and eight novels later, but I finally did. I pretty much spent that whole time worrying that somebody else was going to write my novel before I got a chance to do it. There are definitely some great books about Johnstown, mostly nonfiction. 
including one by Al Roker. You know the weatherman, Al Roker? He wrote, uh, fairly recently, he wrote a nonfiction book about Johnstown because it was a, a serious weather event that day. But there's nothing like my novel, at least, you know, that I've read yet. So, I, you know, I made it. Now, before I talk to you some more about the, um, the true story behind this historical fiction, I wanted to say a few words about genre. When I started writing, when I published my first novel many years ago, I was completely clueless about everything. I was a magazine writer, and I wanted to write a novel, and since it was my first one, it was sort of semi-autobiographical. It was about a 14-year-old girl who was trapped in her alcoholic family. <clears throat> so, oops, sorry, Dad. That was <laughs> um, so I wrote this novel, and I sent it out to a bunch of agents, and I got a bunch of rejection letters that said, sorry, we don't handle YA. And I said, what is ya? I mean, I was really that clueless. Now, in my defense, this was before J.K. Rowling made ya a real thing. But a friend of mine who was a writer in New York said, it means young adult, you nincompoop. And that, that changed everything for me. I targeted agents who did handle YA. And I got to hear the most wonderful word that every author wants to hear, and that was yes. And I, overnight, I became a young adult author. I had no intention to do it. It was just the way the, the cookie crumbled. And for my next six book deals were young adult. So I'm telling you this because I talk to a lot of authors who say to me, I don't want to really lock myself into a genre. I want everybody to read my book. But I now understand how important knowing what your genre really is. And I also, I'm here to tell you that your genre does not have to define your whole career. I ended up writing two more mainstream novels and, and historical fiction. Excuse me. <clears throat> this is not the tequila I was hoping to get at the party. <laughs> I'll get that later. But. So back to Woman in the Photo. This historical fiction novel has two main characters, two protagonists. One is a young woman in modern-day California. The other is a young woman in Gilded Age, Pennsylvania. And their lives are connected through a photograph found in the aftermath of one of the largest disasters in American history, the Johnstown flood. Now, to me, and probably to you and everybody else who knows about it, calling it a flood is completely misleading. In fact, I had a very hard time selling it to my editor. I'm like, it's about a flood. It's this incredible July flood. What? You know, what really happened there was the catastrophic failure of a dam. And it was a dam that was made primarily of dirt and rocks and mud and horse manure and anything and everything they could shove in there, they did. And when that dam burst, it contained a very large man-made lake. This photograph here is the actual lake. I'll, I'll pass these around, or you can come up and I have some smaller ones I can pass around too. Uh, but it's, these are the original photographs of the actual lake. And this first one 
There's a little canoe on it, so you get a sense of how big that, that lake really was. When the dam burst, 20 million tons of water came careening down a mountain, and it wiped out an entire town in 10 minutes. Uh, more than 2,000 people died. It was the largest single-day loss of life before 9-11. People died in the flood, and even worse, they died in fire, which uh, I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but while I love a good disaster story, as Marianne said, it was the human story that really captured my imagination because this is a story about the indifference of the 1%. It's a story about a catastrophe, a, a class as much as it is about a catastrophe, and it's as relevant today as it was 133 years ago, which is a very sad state, but I think it's true. So I will tell you why um, this lake and the dam was owned by the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, which was an exclusive private retreat for Pittsburgh's wealthiest family. Everybody who was anybody back in Pittsburgh in, in the late 1800s owned a little piece of the club. Andrew Carnegie, which I now know is how you pronounce it. It's not Carnegie Hall, it's Carnegie Hall. Um, Henry Clay Frick, Andrew Mellon, the big banker, all the big steel guys, the big industrialists, they all owned a piece of the club. And a very few families owned a little cottage around the lake. Most rented a room in a rustic hotel they called the clubhouse, which is still standing to this day. Now, I got a private tour of the clubhouse, and I felt very superior about it, but everybody can get one. I found out all you need to do is ask <laughs> the, the parks department, and they'll let you in. It's like a time capsule. They just lock the door, and I walked inside. It's uh, very tiny rooms, enough for a really small bed and a little uh, nightstand with water, no bathroom, no electricity. There was a two-story outhouse out in the back. I'm going to pass around a, a, a picture of these women's dresses. <laughs> and you can see I can't even imagine how they navigated a two-story outhouse in these petticoats and stuff that they, that they wore. But the real draw was the dining room. The dining room is not standing today because it was a giant rectangle of glass. And everybody who came to the club was asked to eat every meal in the dining room because that's where all the social networking took place. As one historian told me, it's where my daughter could meet your son and nobody had to worry about it. It's where the rich went to be with their own kind. So um, it's safe to say that the club members never gave the residents of Johnstown a single thought. In fact, when I was doing my research, the head of the Historic Society took me all around and showed me everything. And he said, now don't make this some dumb story about the rich girl and the poor boy and their eyes lock at the train station, which of course was exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> Uh, he's told me that would never happen. These two classes were so separated. 
They would only mesh when maybe somebody from Johnstown was working at the club, but it was so unheard of that there would be some kind of connection between the two, which that fact actually helped me get more creative on how I could get these two people to kind of meet. So it's safe to say club members never gave the people of Johnstown a second thought. They came in on their, private, on their Pullman cars, their first class train. They got picked up at the bottom of the hill and taken up. This is kind of a drawing, but they got taken up here up the hill to, and that's a, a person right there, that's a tree, to the only way in and out of the club, which is a dirt road that's at the top of the dam. That was the only way in and out. Um, the people of Johnstown, however, they, they knew all about the club. They saw the no trespassing signs. In the summer, they would look up the hill and they would see the sail the sails of the rich crisscrossing the sky. They called it the Bosses Club because these were the bosses of the two big factories, too, that were in Johnstown, a barbed wire factory and a steel mill. Um, so they also knew that the members of the club, the caretakers, did not take care of that dam. It sagged in the middle. It seeped water. They told them about it many, many times. What was worse is they lowered it to make more room for their bigger and bigger carriages. It was like this, and they lowered it so the road would be wider. If that wasn't bad enough, um, I think the most egregious thing they did was, because I grew up in Southern California, I did not know what a spillway was. But I'm sure all of you know what a spillway is. It's a little escape valve at the side of a dam, and when the water comes up, it goes out through the spillway and keeps it from breaching the top. But every summer, these wealthy people up at the club, the caretakers stocked that lake with a 1,000 bass. They brought up these giant um, aquariums. They dumped it in because they wanted everybody to fish and catch giant fish and go take it to the chef and feel really good about themselves. <laughs> and they found out that the fish were escaping through the spillway and swimming down into the rivers around Johnstown where the townspeople would catch them and eat them and they couldn't have that. So the caretaker put a mesh screen over the spillway a mesh screen that was clogged with debris, constantly dead fish and logs. And on that horrible rainy day in May of 1889, when the water went up, 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 it had nowhere to go. Now, a lot of people think that a dam breaches because there's so much pressure behind it. But that isn't actually what happens in an earthen dam like this. The weakest spot I learned is in the top middle. If water breaches over the top middle, it's going to create a V. It's going to create a fulcrum. And that fulcrum will split out. And that's exactly what happened. I saw a photograph of the actual dam that was right after all the water had, had careened out of it. And it looked like, um, do you remember that boxing match with Leon Spinks? I think uh, it was with Muhammad Ali. He got hit in the face, and all his teeth were like 
that's exactly what it looked like, just crazy, jagged, down the middle. And survivors down in Johnstown described seeing a giant black mountain just rolling down onto them. The reason it was black is because that water sucked in horses and people and houses on a barbed wire factory and oil and train cars, anything and everything got sucked into that giant mass of water and just tumbled through town and didn't stop until it get, got to the stone bridge here at the very far end of Johnstown, which is still standing to this day. This stone bridge stopped the the debris from continuing its destruction, the water went back behind it, and created a giant mess, a debris field that was four stories high, that was acres and acres and acres wide. And the most horrible thing of all was it trapped 80 people alive in it. And they were so deep in it that nobody could get them out. And then the most horrible thing imaginable happened, fire broke out. So for, for three days, can you imagine? The, you survive this horrible tragedy, and for three days you have to hear the survivors um, crying out as they got burned alive, and nobody could get to them. Horrible, horrible tragedy that, that really shook the entire world. The entire world heard about it. But I'll have to tell you that as a writer, I was most interested in what happened after. In fact, that's where everybody's true colors came out. In fact, the original title for my novel was Aftermath, but the publisher wanted to change it to, you know, they, they like to have a, a person in the title, I now know. Um, everybody's true colors came out in the aftermath. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. You'll have to read to find out what happened. <laughs> but I will say this. The people of the club, they did something very modern. These rich people, the richest people in America, they lawyered up. And back then, they did what a lawyer would tell you to do today. Say nothing. Admit nothing. Don't apologize. Just walk away. And that's what they all did. They walked away. Nobody ever came back to that club again. And Andrew Carnegie donated blankets. That was it. So I imagine that I, my, in my vision, the wives were probably horrified and wanted to go help, but were not allowed to because they couldn't admit liability. So the other thing that I think was so incredible in the aftermath is what the people of Johnstown did. In the midst of this horrible tragedy, the steel mill was still working. They, the people that were survivors got themselves pulled together, got the, the, the steel mill working again, and they went back to work because they understood that their work was important. It, they made the steel that made America. And it was so inspirational to me, just the resilience of these people. And I wanted to make sure I told their story. I wanted to make sure I 
was respectful to the people of Johnstown today. It's not an easy place to live in today because it's a steel town that lost its steel mill. So, um, but I will say this, that one, one of the gifts of this story, the story gave me was a character that came in, a real person that came in late in the story. And this is somebody that I'm sure you've heard about, but you don't know that much about. And that is Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross. And at 67 years old, she was one of the first responders in the truly gruesome aftermath of the Johnstown flood. And she stayed there for five months in the muck and the mud and the death and the just horrible sadness at 67. That was before 67 was the new 40. She, while the, all the men were sort of arguing over who was in charge, Clara Barton, this little woman, not even five feet tall, she arranged for lumber to be donated from the state of Iowa, and she had built two big Red Cross hotels and helped that town get back together. I want to say a couple of things about Clara Barton, because had I known how, what an amazing woman she really was, I would have made my story about her a little bit sooner. She was a, a really extraordinary woman in the truest sense of the word, outside the ordinary. I have a picture I'll pass around with her hairstyle was exactly the same in her 20s and her 90s. <laughs> extraordinary. Um, but she was born into a family of adults. Her sister, her eldest sister, was 17 when she was born. Her mother was almost 40. I mean, having a baby at 40 even now is a little bit late, but back then it was probably a shock, maybe an embarrassment. And in her diaries, Clara wrote about feeling lost and lonely and useless as a kid. And just a kid who was completely ignored and out of the way until, until a life-changing event when she was 11 years old. Her brother, her older brother, was in the, in the barn doing some work on the rafters, and he fell. He fell and hit his head, didn't break any bones, but he had a headache that wouldn't go away, something that we would call a concussion today, I'm sure. And they brought the doctor in, and the doctor prescribed leeches. Because who doesn't want a parasite, you know, sucking the blood out of your headache? So the only problem with leeches is it's a really complicated, hands-on procedure where you have to peel off this gross thing. And you know, it was, uh, nobody wanted to do it. But 11-year-old Clara Barton said, I'll do it. And her parents said, who are you? No, her, her parents said, OK. And for the next two years, this little kid did not leave her brother's side. And she nursed him back to health. Even though those leeches made him worse, she made him better. And it changed her life. She knew at 11 years old what she wanted to do, and she did it. Um, they, her whole life is, is amazing, but I'm going to tell you one other amazing story about her. She was one of only four women working for the federal government. She never married. And back then, to put it in context, when a woman took a man's job, in those days, they were shunned because it was considered that they were not only taking a job away from a man, they were taking a job away from a whole family. Never mind she was unmarried, she had to support herself. That was not acceptable. And they also believed that 
women and men could not work together without hanky-panky. And there are documented she at least had two affairs with married men, so maybe there was something to that. But the most extraordinary thing she did when the Civil War broke out, since she was working for the federal government, she heard that soldiers on both sides were dying in the mud because they could not get supplies up to them fast enough, the government bureaucracy. So she quit her job. She raised money. She got a horse and a giant wagon, and she filled it with supplies. And she rode right into the front of the Civil War. And this, the generals were furious. Who is this little woman, you know, wandering around? But she just silenced everybody with competence. She did what nobody wanted to do. She took the limbs and put them in a pile. And she became known as the angel of the battlefield because men would die. They'd open their eyes, and there she was, you know. Uh, the image that I'll, I'll never forget is in her diary. She talked about um, having a permanent stripe at the bottom of all her dresses, because she was in blood so much, and she could never get it out. But that experience of the war made her brave, made her gutsy, and made her found the American Red Cross. And Johnstown put the American Red Cross on the map. Uh, but it was the beginning of the end for Clara Barton, because as, as the American Red Cross became more popular, people started to say, hey, you know, this woman is sort of bossy, and why does she have to have the say over everything? And she ended up getting pushed out of her own organization. So what an incredible woman, what an incredible story. And the whole inspiration for me, why I chose this, I think, um, was one word, resilience. These people how you come back from something like that, how Clara Barton came back from what she had to endure, including the suicide of her brother, who the one who, which was so shameful at the time, nobody ever spoke about it. She, in her diary, she talked about the horrible thing that befell him, but there was a lot of mental illness in her family that would be medicated right now, and they all just kind of gutted it out. So resilience. If I could find another story like this one that really just locked onto me, and honestly, I don't really know why, other than the amazing resilience of these people, it was such, such a gift for me to be able to write this story and hopefully honor the people of Johnstown. So we have a couple of people here that know about Johnstown today. Um, Anyway, uh, I, I think about the resilience of these people a lot as I go through my life and have a difficult time. I think, well, you know, it's, uh, it, it's not so bad. So I'm going to stop here and open it up for questions and see if uh, you guys have any comments about, about Johnstown or I can pass around the pictures. And thank you so much for your attention. Yeah? Question, because you've written Yes, and originally, uh, since we're all writers here, I can tell you the truth. Um, originally, I thought just the pure Johnstown story was good enough. But my publisher said, you know, there's sort of a trend of a modern story and 
the, the uh, historical story. So do you think you could just blend those two, create And because I was an idiot who didn't know anything, I'm like, sure, of course, whatever you want, you know, without realizing that I ended up writing two novels, really. And it was, it was not easy. And because I had published several teen novels, they asked me, <laughs> This is mortifying that I just turned over and said yes to everything, but I really did. They asked me to make my characters a certain age because they wanted my teen readers to grow into my adult books. So I said yes to everything, and the process was much more difficult than I would have ever thought. But I'll tell you the truth. I didn't know what I was doing, so I didn't know I was doing anything wrong, really. And I have been told, Monty, I thought about you during the workshop today. I was told, wait a minute, you know, you can't write a historical novel where the story is real and the characters are false. You need to have real characters and a fall. And I'm like, oh, you do? You know, I just didn't know, so I didn't do it. And it was, I've learned since then that there are supposedly rules about historical fiction, but thank God. I followed Monty's advice, even though I just heard it today. <laughs> I knew you were in my future. Ignore the rules, do it, do it your way. And I think, I truly believe that sometimes ignorance is bliss. If you don't know you can't do something, you figure out a way to do it, and that's exactly what happened. So I think the, the other answer to your question is the research. I've, I've been to Johnstown many times, and it's an amazing place. Uh, if anybody is anywhere near that neighborhood, you, there's now a whole town on the bottom of the lake. You know, it's that, the, the lake was just a big hole after the, the, the big flood and it dried out and now there's sidewalks and houses and bikes and it's just the most incredible thing. And then the old clubhouse which is still standing there. So it's, um, it's really a unique time capsule of a time gone by and, and history that not everybody thinks is so great. I know that Andrew Carnegie felt a lot of guilt about this his whole life, but you know, he still didn't do much, much of that. So. Anyway, uh, yeah. Was there any uh, ever accountability for, or was there any like kind of follow-up trial or any type of government response? No, the question, Earl asked me to repeat the question and I forgot the first time, but the question is, is there, was there ever any accountability? And the answer is no. And because in those days as now, you know, the people who have the money have the power. And the, the people who, they were the bosses of all the workers, and they, um, they didn't really have recourse. Like today, I think there might have been, there might be a, a bigger uproar just in society. But what I found so shocking was that they just quietly tiptoed away. And they left furniture in the little cottages, you know, they just walked away. The caretaker, his house was right on the lake, the one who closed up the, um, 
the spillway. He did not have the money to go anywhere, and so he spent the rest of his life with a lakefront house that was just at the very tip of a giant hall that was the scene of the crime. So I think he, he had a lot of just personal accountability, a lot of shame, because he stayed there. But it was very isolated, too. Nobody went up there. You know, the Johnstown people never went up there. You would think they would go up there and move in to some of those houses, but they didn't. Yeah? So you, as an author, uh, confronting this um, catastrophe, did you feel you had certain responsibilities in moral or you know, intellectual in how you brought that to your readers? Absolutely. And for some reason, I, the main character, Elizabeth, the rich girl, I knew her from the very beginning. I, I just totally understood her. Not that I come from any money. I really don't. In any upstairs, downstairs, my family was always in the basement. Uh, but she was somebody who felt trapped in her life. So I really understood her. But my, I felt that I needed to honor the workers in that town who suffered so much and still do. So my kind of, um, my heart was with them in a way. I wanted to make sure that they didn't feel uh, abused or they didn't feel uh, exploited. So I really was very careful about it. A couple of people asked me like, well, why are you writing about this? It happened such a long time ago. My, you know, why am I writing that? This is the most incredible story. I think a lot of the people in Johnstown maybe want to forget it, but it was such a great story that I was determined to, you know, pick that scab. And, and it happened just recently in the Ukraine. It's that's a similar right. thing, so. Right, and, and in California, too, there was some damn that, you know, all of a sudden I, I've seen how, um, how people don't take care of these things that they need to take care of, and it's they kind of wait for a disaster to happen. So it's, um, yes. Um, I'm just I'm curious about your writing process on the balance between research and writing from a historic. Like, how much did you do, and how did you juggle them both? Did you do one before the other? Okay, the question is about the process, the process of writing. Because I came from magazines, I was always on a deadline. I got up, I went to work, I did my work, I watched Oprah and took a nap, and that, that was literally my day. So I was very used to having a regular work day. And that's exactly what I did. I um, took, took a train to Pittsburgh from New York City, which was a, like an extremely long train. But I loved it because I felt connected to the people of, of 1800s. And I would write on, the, on my long train ride, too. Um, Miriam might know there's one boo-boo in this book that only somebody who lives there could know. And when you don't know, sometimes you make stupid mistakes. But when I was on the train from New York to Pittsburgh, I went around this amazing thing called the Horseshoe Curve where it's right around a mountain and it just takes a complete U-turn and it was so wonderful. I'm like, well, I'm gonna put this in, this is great. So I put the horseshoe curve in, but 
I found out that the, if you go from Pittsburgh to Johnstown, you do not take the horseshoe curve. It's only from New York. So I got a lot of mail on that one. <laughs> yes, so you make a mistake, you know, you're going to hear about it. But riding on a train is amazing. It's so, especially a long train ride, it's kind of, if you're riding something historical, to me, it was really amazing. But um, the, the short answer is, I got up, I still do today. I get up, I go to work, and then have lunch. And Oprah's not on anymore. So, But it's just kind of you get in that habit of that's, what, what, that's how you go to work. So. And, and did you separate the research from the writing and like blocks, or did you just sort of do it all when it all? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a better question, because the question was that I separate the research from the fiction. The real challenge of this book was weaving the two of them. And what my big fear was that I didn't want somebody to get to the modern story and go, you know, and flip because they were more interested in the old story, or do it the other way around. So I was really worried about making sure that they, they wove together perfectly and that they were both interesting stories on their own. So I did it linearly. I just did it chapter one. You know, I flipped back and forth, flipped back and forth, and tried to um, weave them together. I had some big problems to solve. And I had to solve how they were connected. You know, I had to figure out some things that would make sense how these two women of different generations were, were actually related. And how is it possible they wouldn't know that? So I did a couple of, you know, gymnastics trying to figure that one out. But you'll, you'll have to read the book and you'll find out how I did it. So let me know what you think. But, okay, any other questions before you go and nurse your hangover? <laughs> yes. What a great question. Did I struggle with being non-judgmental? I guess I was a little judgy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I felt they deserved some judginess. It's, um, I think it was, uh, again, my heart was with the workers and, and being, telling their story. You know, the, it was a, a town of immigrants. And they all had clubs. And they all had their, their communities. But they were just so proud and happy to go to work. And when they would get their paycheck, they would put their suits on. It was just this wonderful sense of being part of the cog of America, which I think we've lost a little bit of. And so it was, in fact, the term hunk comes from the Hungarians in Johnstown which were no, they were known as hunkies, and the Hungarians were the big muscle guys, so they were called hunks, and that's why all these hunks here, that's why you, you, where you got that name. But it was so, so inspirational to me, just the, the way they felt about their job, the way they felt about their contribution to the country, and I, I think it's something we need to get back to a little bit. Yes, way in the back. Yeah, great question. What is Johnstown like today? 
Well, Marianne might be able to answer, but I can tell you I haven't been there in a couple of years, but it's the main industry I think is medical maybe, or there's some, it's kind of a lost town. There's the steel mill, and I'm not sure how much it works, it's still kind of there. Well, it was such an education for me. I grew up in Southern California. I lived in New York City. And it was the first time I really saw up close what it's like to live in a one industry town and that one industry is gone. And it's happening all over the place. You know, what do you do? You can't just up and move your whole family. You can't just, you know, what, what do you do? So it was, um, it was a real eye-opener about this town that is struggling, even though there's not a lot of opportunity there. It's also physically, it's in the middle of two little rivers, and it floods to this day, as far as I know. I mean, I know they did, they have little floods all the time. It's kind of like, it reminded me a little bit of the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, which probably never should have built, been built in that basin. It was just geographically a, a disaster waiting to happen. And the same thing about Johnstown. I think they probably think it's not worth it to do something there because it's, it's right in the, in the V of a valley that's prone to flooding all the time. So, but they're hanging in. I mean, somehow they are hanging in. And it's, uh, I don't know, I hope tourists go and, and get, they should open up the clubhouse, you know what? You guys, for a drunken mob, you, you are amazingly attentive. Thank you so much. <laughs>